Hey everybody, welcome to Don't Sit in the Front. This week I watched the FX documentary Hysterical about women in comedy. I watched it and then talked to returning guest Casey Gates Fry. You can find her on Twitter at Casey Gates. She was the first guest ever on this podcast. She's a good friend of mine and helped me a lot. She is a screenwriter and director. She's directed a short film called Crystal. You can find all of that at vimeo.com slash ladybrainfilms. Yeah, so I really enjoyed this documentary. I recommend uh, people watch it. It's if you have access to FX uh, in a way to rewatch it or it's on Hulu. Uh, we break down all of it in this episode, so I'll get right into it. Thanks everybody so much for listening. Uh, reach out to me if you have ideas of other documentaries about stand-up or books or anything you think I should look at. It's at don't sit in the front on Instagram, at don't underscore sit on Twitter. This is the episode with Casey Gates Fry. Welcome to Don't Sit in the Front. This week, I am very safely and with both of us in stages of vaccination doing the first time I've ever recorded an episode of a podcast in person. So it's a little bit of a learning experience. I hope the audio is okay. We'll figure that out. And this week, I am talking to uh, my good friend Casey. Casey Gates Fry was the first guest ever on this podcast. So welcome Welcome back to the show, Casey. Thank you. It's nice to see your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice to talk in a room with people, not on Zoom, trying to figure out an internet delay. I already feel so much more natural because I can see your face. I can see you nodding. This is new for me. Other people, like other podcasts have always, they had to transition to going online. I have to transition to going back offline. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that you're learn learning it the opposite way that most people had to learn digital or zoom remotely. And now mm -hmm. you're like, how do I be a person in a room with another person? Exactly. So I want to give, uh, Casey, you should give your Twitter handle up front. Uh, Casey is a writer. Uh, she directed a short film called crystal. It's a very funny look at what it would be like if a, uh, dating app really had all of the information from all of your uh, social media data and other things about you in almost a magical way. Um, you can find that on, you have your Vimeo channel. Yeah. Vimeo.com backslash lady brain films. Mm. That's where my, uh, videos are short films and stuff. My Twitter is at Casey Gates. I just kept the like full Casey Gates, even though now I added fry to my last name. Mm. Actually, actually, Twitter told me today, this morning, that it's my 12-year anniversary of being on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really weird. So what is it? 2021. So that that was 2009. Mm-hmm. That was early Twitter. That's how I got my full name, I think. I think, yeah, because Twitter came out when I was in college. 
was fully i fully ignored it this is not comedy content but the first time i saw it, the first time i think twitter is important to comedy but the first time i ever paid attention to it was when it was being used by like activists and things in iran who were like uh trying to overthrow their government for a more democratic one um but i remember twitter i was always like that's never gonna last and now it seems to be one of the most important things in politics and also comedy yeah it is kind of crazy i joined because i was doing comedy actually Mm. i was doing ucb and there was kind of this person that was sort of trying to be a manager that was it was kind of like the blind leading the blind he was sort of trying to help me like navigate the comedy scene and acting even though he was just learning about it too but he like kind of was my pseudo manager for a little while and he was like get on twitter like now like yesterday like you need Mm -hmm. a twitter handle and i was like okay Uh uh-huh i don't know but that was good i mean i think good for you to go into doing different things in entertainment with that mindset that early because i see some people now who've done things for decades who now have to get into it and it's completely awkward and i i feel too old for it just because i was that way too where i didn't use it until i had this show so yeah and he also was like just film yourself doing funny stuff and like put it on youtube and in 2009 i don't know why that seemed like no nobody does that (laughs) like Uh and i wish that i like did more of that at that time you know what i mean because like now it's just like so oversaturated mm-hmm. and at the time i was doing a lot of characters and i was like mm. and i did a little bit on youtube but not much mm-hmm. i don't know if i really like tried i probably I-, I probably would be an influencer right now yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing that's stopping all of us is trying uh if so you have many life updates. I think so. This is almost like a state of the podcast because you were my first guest. Very graciously gave me your time. Also introduced me to people like Kadi Asad, um, who then snowballed into introducing me to other comics. Um, I've been able to grow the show a lot since then, and it was really just like Casey's married to my cousin, and uh, I've talked with a little bit with Casey about comedy before I started the show and then I was like hey I have this idea and can you help me experiment and test it out like is it even going to be viable and then it really grew into like I said a snowball effect of talking to comics and then like the goals I set from the start people like names I wrote down like uh Rhea Butcher or uh Jackie Cation have both been on the show those are like my pie in the sky someday talk to them maybe if you keep it up and then I've already kind of talked to them so that all started with you honestly so thank you to you oh I'm so glad and how does it feel to have peaked yeah (laughs) (laughs) you've peaked on your podcast I peaked early I had to write down new pie in the sky names um I would like so one goal moving forward with the podcast is to kind of slow it down and get back to some of the content and like meta nitty gritty things about comedy that I originally thought I would have would be having like I couldn't find guests and I had to like fill my just me talking kind of time stuff but it's like I've found a lot of people who want to talk about things and then uh something that came up that seemed like very good content to do and was related to what we talked about on the first episode uh when you were working with Hoo which is a women plus uh comedy creator collective um, and platform uh, the this documentary called hysterical about women in comedy it's on FX and we watched I think we both watched it on um, 
Hulu. It came out the next day on Hulu. Is about really kind of the history of uh, female stand-up comics, or I should say, women identifying stand-up comics. And yeah, I guess uh, it's like kind of hard to just kind of jump into the documentary. But had you, it kind of snuck up on me. Had you heard of it before I suggested it for the episode? It, it kind of came out of nowhere for me. No, I hadn't heard of it at all. And honestly, I'm like surprised that I haven't seen it on the internet since. Like you told me about it and then I was kind of looking to see, oh, like did Hoo Ha post about it? Which like I haven't seen them post about it yet, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no shade. I'm just like, oh, like it doesn't feel like it's like quite in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I almost thought, I would get targeted like the trailer for it or something on my ads, or, mm-hmm. but maybe they're just not pushing it very much or something. I So there's a few, I don't have like a real strong critique of it, but I think part of it coming out of nowhere and I am kind of paying attention to these kind of things or at least follow a ton of comics online is that it is hyper focused on, I think the New York scene and obviously the comedy seller is the, the central venue or they shoot a lot of scenes and people sitting around the comics table and it is very New York focused. So I, I definitely skew in my comedy interests of people out here in LA. Yeah. Even though you could, you know, you can consume content from anyone anywhere, but so that may be one reason why I think it snuck up on me. I had heard another comic, um, on another podcast. I won't put her on blast, but was just, feeling left out because as someone who actually came out of that scene who for many years and was like why was I not included so there's always that kind of thing of like FOMO and we're back to that stage again where the pandemic as it wanes down I see comics saying things like it's already back to why didn't I get on that show why didn't I get on that um why wasn't I included in that festival stuff like that that's getting planned now but yeah I was curious yeah I'm like I would be curious to know how they chose their quote unquote cast or because mm. they have some like very well-known people and then some more up and coming. And um, but there's like, yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of women that you could have reached out to. to I think it, it. it's so then it's like that documentary problem of the documentaries that I think are more successful or when they because if you're just saying women in comedy, then it's like, do you mean stand up? Do you mean sketch? Do you mean whatever? Then you focus, okay, it's about stand-up. Then it's going to be more successful to be more hyper-focused, and they almost don't tell you, but it is really about people who gravitate around the comedy seller. So, yeah. And if you had just branded it like the women of the comedy seller or something, it wouldn't hit the same way because it does have a lot of uh, social critique. There's like a feminist critique of comedy, the industry, um, and just the role of how women are expected to be in society is like a strong critique that carries like a through line through the whole thing and emphasizing that women were told for such a long time to not, you know, don't say anything dirty, don't act out, don't be uh, anything but like a homemaker basically. Cause they show you this, like these, those like horrendous um, montages of things from the fifties, oh, but also yeah. from like the last 10 years of people saying like women aren't funny or they shouldn't be, Um, that's jumping ahead a little bit. I'll give some context of uh, a little more of the documentary. I think people should check it out. It's not like you can really spoil something about a documentary. I think you learn a lot from it. People who are prominent in the documentary are Judy Gold, uh, Jessica Kirsten, Carmen Lynch, Nikki Glaser, Sherry Shepard, Margaret Cho, 
Fortune Feimster, Rachel Feinstein, Marina Franklin, Bonnie McFarlane, Kathy Griffin has a pretty significant segment talking about her controversy with her photo shoot with the Donald Trump head. Yeah, so I think it it does show some. The main thing is like when I saw trailers, I was I think the way they cut it for like the FX trailer, which is like very mainstream broad appeal kind of drawing they're trying to do. It did look very um, white and like very focused hyper-focused on a very specific set of comedians. But then as I saw the documentary, I think it is more diverse than it at first looked. And especially in terms of generation, you get a lot of um, women who did comedy through the 80s and 90s and are still doing it. And then the kind of this newer generation. But the newer generation they focus on are people that are still very um, established in like national touring. So I wonder if you had anything you thought about like differing expectations versus then what you saw. I was pleasantly surprised by how polemical or critical the documentary was. It wasn't just sort of like women are funny too. It was like very pointed, like this is what's wrong with comedy right now. And Yeah, I appreciated that as well. I think that it's hard for me to know a little bit how like a general audience would react because I think that this topic specifically, you know, having worked at Hoo Ha for two years, I was so immersed in the topic of women in comedy and what are the hardships that we face and, you know, kind of speaking to that through the content I was creating. And so there wasn't that much that I wasn't aware of, you know what I mean? Like it was very much like, yeah, I... I know these grievances, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've heard these a lot, but there were certain things that I took from it for sure. But I I would be curious to know like what more of someone that is just a a general fan and hasn't like spent a lot of time studying it Mm -hmm. would think. Um, But yeah, I think that it was, what was the question? (laughs) Does anything, I guess that were your expectations, uh, different or met or um anything surprise you about it because i think i had just dropped it on you like the week before and was like oh this is coming out and we were kind of in talks about doing an episode eventually anyway and then we it was like very good timing that i could show you like oh this is coming out we can watch it and then talk about it right after it comes out it came out last friday at the time of this recording so yeah a thing that surprised me that i really took from it was yeah, the multi-generational idea and even the little clip of Amy Schumer's joke about how the generation coming up is like of women is saying, hey, you shouldn't be treated like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> like with the Me Too movement and mm. and, you know, her slash my generation. I don't know if I'm the same generation as Amy Schumer, I guess probably. She's maybe a, a little older than both of us. but Yeah, yeah. but not by much. Mm. And yeah, and it's true that like younger people being like speaking out and um, having strong opinions and saying, hey, that's not cool. Where mm-hmm. when I was 17 or 20, just kind of accepting things as is, you know, mm-hmm. like I wasn't thinking to challenge misogyny or that kind of sexism or racism. Like, at, you know, those age, at that age, it wasn't like in our cultural conversation in the Mm -hmm. way that it is now so I thought that was really cool to like reflect on on that especially through Kelly Bachman's story oh yeah that 
is so powerful to me what she did calling out Harvey Weinstein in the room. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. people aren't familiar with that clip, I like had heard of it when it happened and then um, hadn't thought about it a whole lot. And then it's a sort of a segment of this documentary to look at kind of like passing the torch to this is the next generation. And was, she was like very inspiring what she did to people that have been at it for women that have been at it for a long time. Um, she was doing a show in I think New York, um, Kelly Bachman. So first of all, I'll say like they lit, you know, on a documentary, they have someone giving an interview and then they'd say their name and they'll like put the little Chiron of their, um, it was this one. They were saying how, since when they've been doing stand up, So people would be like, Kathy Griffin was like 1978 until, the present and then Kelly Bachman said since 2018 I was like well we did lose that year of 2020 so that messes up your thought but I'm still like that's like that just happened so like she hasn't been at very long at all and then later it gave you more context them remembering who she was she during her set um called out and kind of like reverse heckled uh Harvey Weinstein of being like why is he here why is he at this show and then people booing her for doing that and it's it's a troubling and interesting clip but she was super brave to do that i know and kind of nikki glazer and some of the other um women that have been doing it a lot longer and their comment about wow like that inspired me and reminded me like this is why we're doing comedy and like i don't know if i could have done what she did and you know part of it might be she has less at stake than someone Mm -hmm. that's prominent but still like I, I that like really moved me about the power of comedy and how it's a platform and it's a way for women to literally take the stage and speak out even if through jokes against those kinds of wrongdoings or you know um, just kind of like reflecting on society in this critical way that it was very they didn't say this explicitly in the documentary but it was kind of saying like women are the best at doing that like Mm. we're better suited to dip into our emotions Mm. dip into our feelings and then like regurgitate those stories back to an audience through jokes through observations and that kind of comedy art and it reminded me of how jill sorry now joey soloway (laughs) talks Mm. about directing And when they were speaking to the AFI um, directing workshop for women graduating class, talking about how women and women plus are inherently like designed to be feelers. And that's what a director on set needs to be. You need Mm -hmm. to be in tune with your actors, with the feeling of like what's going on in that story, in that circumstance at that time, like you need to be sort of this like sponge but also very stable and constant and that's women are better at that like it was her Mm. was their point um so yeah it's kind of like it was that's something that struck me about this documentary was we're like more uniquely qualified to speak out against you know some of the misogyny and sexism and racism and all the kind of oppression um, through comedy in a way because we're like already in touch with those feelings and we're we're ready to like speak out about it kind of. Mm. The generational aspect uh, was something I just kept thinking of um, just being a historian and thinking about it. And I like one thing I appreciate about the documentary is showing like there were indeed 
women talking about these things maybe in much more coded terms in on a more public platform but they show you uh kind of a history of women in stand up with the different sections one of the, and then in this section called ladylike they showed all of these women comedians in like from the 40s so there's moms mabley um African American woman comic or sort of the early days of stand up and then some television footage, people like Phyllis Diller. Bouncing back and forth between footage from the fifties uh, into the present, I think is something that the documentary does well. Did you expect Casey going into this documentary that I so I did not expect that it would be as deep as it was? Maybe that's my naivete is like and not even like virtue signaling. I'm just like I am attuned to like what people are telling me through their stand-up comedy that are like the social issues they want to talk about and what they're going through and then still i can be just naive and be like is that this this documentary is not going to be as deep and hit me as hard but it's like duh it's like it's about women in our patriarchal society and it's about women in comedy i don't know if it was judy gold but someone said i never understood sexism till i got in the comedy scene yeah i I don't know. I think I didn't have much expectation going in. Like I, mm. but I do think that the the way I was moved was surprising. You mm-hmm. know, and I wondered if I would watch it and go, oh, like I want to go back and try to do some more stand up, like and miss some of that comedy scene. But I actually didn't have that <laughs> reaction. Uh-huh. Um, that was like an expectation that I didn't have but I was inspired as more of like a writer you know what I mean and that I am still pursuing that but not in the sense of writing jokes and doing stand-up comedy but in the sense of like sharing my experience sharing like that that my experience is as valid as the mainstream male voice that we've that has been dominating media for so long you Mm -hmm. know that so yeah, I was like it was deeper than maybe I subconsciously expected. Yeah, it they follow especially when they one of the sections they ask uh they break it into basically asking women about their experience of things like uh just getting into comedy in general but then more specific about what it was like trying to fight for stage time. So having to always constantly justify your act uh, as opposed to you might be one of few women on the lineup and then having to fight to even get that stage time uh, versus men then going on the road which you can even see and they take some footage from the comedy seller at the comics table and uh, one of the women comedians is saying like that talking about a road date that was so terrible and they talk about having to stay in comedy condos or like sketchy motels and things And then the male comic at the table is just confused as to like, what do you mean? Like it was fine. It's because like women going on the road and doing any kind of travel have to always be so much more cautious. And um, it's something that the male comics don't have to think about. And you can see it happening in real time with his reaction on his face. He's like, oh, I guess it is. It was really sketchy and I didn't have to think about that. So maybe the like reaction of you were wondering if you would be like, oh, I really want to go back into stand up start doing stand-up more was some of it like oh yeah those are the things that you have to fight through to even get even get like the stage time to get back to where you were with it yeah I think the like because I completely 
know it's true what what they're all saying about it's that 10,000 hours idea. It's that like you are just hungry to get on stage because the more at bats you have, like the better you're going to be, the more confident you're going to be. And you just need to do it as much as possible. And I like totally believe in that. And I have no desire to drive around and mm. or like drive. They were saying like, yeah, a work night, drive up to Santa Barbara and just do 20 minutes and come back to L.A. the same night. Like not only and I felt that way, I now have a baby. <laughs> I have a daughter mm. that I can't, I haven't even left her for more than maybe three hours <laughs> at once yeah. so far in her life. Um, and I, I know I, I could, but I also, there's like nowhere to go right now. So it has, hasn't been too hard, but even before having a child, I was not desiring like running around and, and hustling in that way for stage time. But I think that for me, it's I know that I need to show up to writing yeah, in that way. And I'm like, I much would rather wake up like early, have some coffee and be in my home, like uh-huh. sweating it out and like doing the at bats, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, to pr- better my craft and to learn and have that creative part of me fulfilled and, and in practice. But the onstage part of it is not something i want yeah like uh i'm just thinking too it's interesting for the kind of the time frame of the podcast when casey was on the first episode casey was pregnant now she has had her baby and uh it looks very fun and fulfilling in a lot of ways i wonder if like it shaped your way of looking at this as a mother they do talk a little bit about uh people being mothers and comedians and Angie Stalker was on this podcast a few episodes ago and talked about, at least in her orbit in LA, it seems like some of the people booking shows have been more receptive to uh, helping people out who have younger children or children at all. And also even at, I think at a show at the comedy store, making a space in a room for her to uh, pump breast milk and helping people who need to do that. And that seems like unheard of from like all of that feels unheard of and very foreign to the women in this documentary, especially of the older generation that are talking about coming up as comics and mothers. Yeah. Oh, I believe that, that that's like an exception, not the rule to have that space and that kind Mm -hmm. of, um, accommodation, I guess. And I heard definitely heard, Ali Wong's jokes differently. Oh yeah, because I'd heard them before, but not since having a child. And where she's like, "Yeah, you don't see many women up on stage doing stand-up pregnant. That's because once you have a baby, you stop doing comedy. Like you know, uh-huh. it's like one of these things." And and also when she was talking about healing from having a baby and the chapped nipples and uh-huh. <laughs> the baby's head shredding your vagina up, I'm like. I laughed in a completely different way. Oh, yeah. This time. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I get that now. Yeah, knowing a couple of people firsthand now, um, especially in there have been a lot of it, the age I am, uh, there have been a lot of babies born around me recently. And then hearing more firsthand stories, her comment on, I think she says, like wearing a frozen diaper to like deal with the said shredding. I was just, that hits. <laughs> I can never know, but it hits a little bit different now hearing a little closer to that experience. So Yeah, I bought 
more of them because I ran out and I needed more frozen pads. I mean, diapers, pads, whatever. Like, How... <laughs> Do you want to know more about this? I want to know, is it something you buy and then put in the freezer? Uh, they make ones that are like that. I got the little bit fancier one where you open it and you like crack it and then you shake it. Oh, like an ice pack. Or, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but it's wrapped in like a material that can that is absorbent. And so you stick this whole thing in mm. your underwear. Does <laughs> it feel like a pink tax kind of thing or it could just be an ice pack or is it very crucial that you have it like the right product? Do you think? Well, I think. I tried to make my own because mm -hmm. like they're not cheap and you use it once and you have to get mm -hmm. rid of it. So, you know, and I couldn't even walk like in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so I had to have Dan go and I was trying to describe to him what kind of ice pack to get. And I was like, it's okay. Like I'll get, if it's like this size, I'll just wrap it in paper towel and then I can stick it in there and I'll be fine. But like there's the like normal ones are so hard on the edges like mm. they're sharp like I couldn't uh -huh. so I couldn't put it inside so I was like okay well I guess I'll just put it on the outside of my leggings or whatever but then it's not close enough like it wasn't doing uh -huh. the trick and I was just like fuck it I'm ordering more of the expensive yeah I realized how dumb what I asked was it's basically like well why didn't you just like duct tape an ice pack to your hoo-ha no so I was like, it's not dumb i mean i i was reading online some hacks where women were taking like sections of like a puppy pee pad and dipping yeah. them in water and laying them in a certain thing in their freezer and then like making their own mm. in the freezer but then that just felt like too much work i don't think i had ever heard any of this talked about in a public forum until ali wong except for like a women's studies class in college where the professor was to demonstrate, this is a 500 person lecture, it's a huge class, to demonstrate the necessity of, I don't know, there's probably a whole argument about whether it's necessary or not, but episiotomy. Mm. So layman's terms, like cutting the taint <laughs> so that <laughs> there's less tearing. Uh, she held up a piece of paper and like she cut a slit in it and then tore it everyone kind of like ooh, like kind of was just like thinking of putting it together what that was she's like so that's with an episiotomy and then here's like if you were to not do it and then just like pulled a piece of paper apart until it burst in one big motion <laughs> and with like a very uneven crack and i'll never unclinch from that oh like, <laughs> wait so she was saying that's why episiotomies are better they're necessary but oh. that was her position and i imagine there's a whole argument about whether they're needed or not well it's funny because you can do the exact same not to talk that long about this is all related <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you can do that same demonstration but show that like when you cut like with cloth you can do it if you cut a slit in the top of cloth and you start to pull it doesn't take much effort to make it start slitting down. Down one straight line instead of a big No, jagged. no, but it'll mm. it'll be so much easier to tear yeah. in a bad way. And then oh. if you take fabric and you pull at it without a tear, you might not even tear. Like you're okay. actually more likely to suffer from a longer tear mm. by a slit, like a cut starting it out. Oh, okay. And See, so, this is the competing school. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, who knows? Like, I'm not, I, that's just something that I had, that's what stuck with me. And so, and my OB 
doesn't do episiotomies just like willy nilly, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I was happy about. Um, but I still had a second degree tear and it oh. was really hard. Uh huh. Without an episiotomy. Yeah. Don't sit in the front. Not where this podcast is not a clear <laughs> endorser or non endorser of episiotomies. We'll Don't add that sit to the, in the list. Front unless you have a donut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So was there anyone in the the documentary you had seen a lot of before and then were like pleased to see them? Or was there anybody that was uh new and you heard more from them? For me, uh, Marina Franklin, I had always seen her. Her face is very familiar, but now I put a name to her and then got to see a lot of her stand up. Um and very like I said, not a everyone should check out the documentary, but like not to spoil it because it's not really how it works. It's not like a fictional narrative or something but she talks about it's on film where she comes into the comedy cellar and says i found out i have breast cancer um and i'm going to talk about it on stage um and then she goes on and talks about it that was like uh very touching for me and like we have some examples of things like that in comedy where that seems to be more of like the space is acceptable to talk about now with like uh, Tig Notaro having like the famous example of her like double bad news day that she then recorded a set. So I was very pleased to see a lot from Marina Franklin and she's a pivotal part of the documentary. Also Sherry Shepard. Um, I didn't know that she, it makes sense, but I didn't know that she started as a standup. I just knew her as like a TV personality and um, had seen her and do acting and stuff. Is there anybody that was new or, did you learn more that, about a comic you already liked? It was cool for me to see Sherry Shepard as well. So I, when I was doing social media on set as a job, I worked on this show called Trial and Error on NBC. And there were two seasons and Sherry Shepard was on mm. both seasons. So I got to work with her a little bit on set. And she was so lovely. She mm-hmm. was so nice, really sweet. And she had invited me to a stand-up show of hers that I wasn't able to make. Um, it was like a benefit. Um, so I was aware that she did stand up, but it was really cool for me to see her in the documentary and get to see like more of her story mm-hmm. um, and how they talk about a few of them talk about who like helped pull them up and, you know, how you have to like give that hand back um, to the people coming up behind you. Mm. Um, so that was really cool for me to see. And I think. I was interested. I didn't know that much about Nikki Glaser and her background. And uh-huh. I thought that was cool to like see like what her childhood was like. And like, you know, I think of her as like a hot blonde like woman. And so I I know I don't know, maybe I just haven't seen enough for a comedy. I'm sure she talks about it more, but to know that like she was always so um insecure about her looks is like surprising. I've heard know? her on other things before, and that's a big topic for her. And it's like, I'm just, yeah, it's like frustrating to hear that it's, she, she has to like talk it out still all the time. Mm. And that seems like she's using her comedy and like podcasts and things to still always kind of talk it out and be like, I had to get through this and I'm still going through it. Um, Eliza Schlesinger, I had like seen a bit from her, but then. I thought an interesting part that she added was when they ask the, they do the segment on this trope in among male comics and just in society of saying women aren't funny. And she's like viscerally reacts. Like you said, we weren't going to talk about that. And I was just like, yeah. So that's gives you the meta of if you're going to do a documentary on women, women in comedy, are you going to talk about that? 
dumb thing that's out there uh but you have to to like show what they're fighting against yeah yeah i kind of like that they had that little behind the scenes Mm -hmm. peek too and the i think producer or whatever behind the camera was like no we're not going to talk about if that's true because obviously it's not but like that idea and what it brings up for you and Mm -hmm. i was also just shocked to see the Jerry Lewis clip. I had not seen that actually. I had heard that about him before and that was like a thing he became known for saying and there was a whole um, thing about it when he would keep saying that. But the Norm Macdonald one, I was just like, fuck him. Like that, I know. That was 2009. I was like, come on. Yeah. He's had other things that made me not like him uh, anymore or not really see the genius in his comedy after a while. But the... The documentary is good at giving like those montages are just like crushing like evidence. I know. I know. It it was pretty infuriating. <laughs> like and just the even if that's not like socially acceptable to talk about out loud anymore, I think that's still a very commonly held belief. Mm. That the, uh, one of the like the comics from a from the kind of earlier generation, I want to say it's Wendy Wendy Liebman maybe. But she was saying she had a really interesting reaction to that, too. She's like, um, obviously, that's not true. But I do believe that it's not that men think that women aren't funny. It's that they don't want them to be funny. Yes. And that's that's what I can relate to with like my upbringing and kind of my dad always saying, like, be a nice young lady, mm-hmm. you know, like and promising young woman <laughs> uh-huh. um, and kind of like be ladylike and don't laugh at the dinner table and like i wanted to make jokes and make my family laugh at the table you Mm -hmm. know that wasn't like allowed and we were punished for doing it Uh uh-huh you know and i didn't have a brother that i have an older brother half brother i didn't grow up with but i didn't so i don't know if he would have been just as stern with boys but i feel like it's just more because he's like 79 so i think it's like more of that old-fashioned mindset of like ah boys will be boys Mm -hmm. but like you are a nice young lady and young ladies don't do that Uh uh-huh and so like that was totally ingrained in me Mm -hmm. i was also pleasantly surprised about kind of some of the reflection around me too and how that affected Mm -hmm. the comedy scene i know i referenced the amy schumer joke but also um this like comment on how before me too is easier to think of that one spot for a woman on a lineup or in a set. And so there was more competition because there's this idea of scarcity mm. and that post me too, there's more of this like, Hey, let me like bring you in here with me and rising up together and including each other and not being against each other as women was really cool for me to hear and makes sense, but I hadn't really thought about it in relation to comedy. But of course, Me Too and like sexual assault and harassment is like very prevalent in the comedy scene. I know Mm -hmm. that. So that completely makes sense why shift that way. But it was cool to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a thing important to bring out, but not a pleasant thing to bring out. But the editing is they there's a segment where they do a good job of just kind of quick cutting to all of the women hearing the question about whatever the interview question was specifically about sexual assault you see all of their reactions and you can see it in their eyes they're like remembering all kinds of things that happened so um yeah i think that was one of the things i was like 
again saying I was probably naive to not expect this from the documentary on this topic, but that I was surprised then how hard hitting and well done it was. So yeah, definitely another good aspect of it. And then I'd say like the other large chunk of topics has to do with free speech and they focus a lot on Kathy Griffin and honestly, I, I mean, they must have started production and you could see some of the interviews they did must have been on Zoom or something. So they maybe finished it up um, in the last year. But after 2020, like the Kathy Griffin thing just seems sort of like quaint or not even a big deal. I feel like I feel like the whole culture has been desensitized to like I'm referring to she was basically canceled even by other comics. Um for her photo shoot with holding up a prosthetic head of pretty realistic prosthetic severed head of Donald Trump, which prompted this. I think now it looks like from the footage, she goes around giving like a talk about free speech and comedy, but it seems quaint now to think that anyone was upset by it. It was just kind of like, it doesn't hit the same way for me anymore. At the time I was just like, Oh, free speech. You can do that if you want. Was that probably 2019? Or even earlier. I think even earlier in his administration. So mm. the bar hadn't been like punched through the floor yet of like what can all be done and said in public. And yeah, so I think people were more sensitive at that time. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, after what we've seen in the last year, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I get what you mean by feeling quaint. Mm. And just cancel culture in general and kind of like what... Yeah, what how that affected her versus it was interesting to hear her her and her publicist talk and they gave all those examples of other male you know creators whether it's musicians or whoever that had similar if not worse like imagery and no one blinked an eye. <laughs> yeah, just as like a like a metal and punk and hardcore fan, it's really funny to me to see a PR person have to talk about that municipal waste is one of the bands and then Guar, but they're like. Because I think Guar, when you spell it, is um, like an acronym like that. But they're like, and the band G-W-A-R. So like if anyone's a fan of like metal and hardcore stuff, they think it's funny. But they show footage of Guar with their crazy stage antics with like a Donald Trump corpse dummy thing. So um, good examples of the double standard and funny to see a PR person have to like go out there and talk about municipal waste and stuff. So yeah. Mm. It is interesting to me that they finished up this documentary and then they have they probably couldn't comment and didn't have anything about what the pandemic has done for um, comedy. But one thing I would say is that people on this show, women I've had on this show have talked about, uh, I should say women and people who are non-binary who've been on this show have talked about the nice thing about doing Zoom shows is you don't get harassed. Um, so the pandemic has definitely put a different focus on because if people remember like right before the pandemic the uh and right at the start of it there were big allegations against stand-up comics um who were uh assaulting uh women or having relationships with minors and that sort of that conversation sort of stopped i think as stand-up comedy has been on hold and as it comes back i wonder if we'll get back to that um movement of trying to make it better working conditions for uh, women and other gender minorities. I wonder if if anyone's talked about this on your podcast or if anyone's experienced that are that's in the comedy scene, women, that I wonder if it's been somewhat easier in terms of booking things with children at home. Oh, yeah. 
I had I like feel like I heard someone talking about this, but it probably wasn't on the documentary, right? Maybe I heard this somewhere else. Yeah, I think so many things are like being able if if you think of like there I think some nothing can really replace the getting comfortable on stage in front of people aspect of it, but if you just need time to get out and do your set, like say the words and hear the beats and everything of it out loud, uh all being able to do all of these Zoom things while having kids at home probably is has been helpful. But I don't know. The overwhelming consensus is like they've quickly reopened and done a lot of shows uh, outdoors and stuff and moving indoors by the end of this month. I think everyone's like the general consensus is like you could do cool things with Zoom and comedy, but we're going to go back to the the real thing pretty quick here. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if any of the online stuff sticks in any way, you know, just if that's I don't know, has a footing at all. Mm, I heard uh Jackie Cation and Laurie Kilmartin on their podcast talk about how from now on why not just do things uh pushed to uh Zoom or some other way and make it remote additionally while doing it indoors too because they've had people who could never go to stand up shows before. Um you know, people with different abilities or ability situations or having kids at home, that kind of thing. You can make it so much more accessible or people just live way out in the middle of nowhere and they would have to drive hours to get to a city to see it. So, and then looking at the gender aspect of it too. Um, the only other thought, this is like not connected, so you might have to cut this. Yeah. So it's, I don't know if there's a good tangent for it, but the other thing the documentary re- reminded me of is my experience coming up with improv comedy uh-huh. in yeah i guess it was 2008 2009 was when i went through like the four levels at ucb uh-huh. and it was s- still such a male dominated thing and mm-hmm. i think it still is but even at that time like and i didn't think to challenge it you know mm-hmm. like and so when Watching, you know, Amy Schumer talk about the generations coming up and saying like, hey, this shouldn't be this way. I like wish I had that thought at that age where I was always just being like, oh, you're the girlfriend, you're the mom, like in the scene, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm like the one girl on stage with all these other dudes. And at one point I was trying to be on this improv team and it was like four other the dudiest dudes, they're like muscle builder like guys. Uh-huh. Like that. I, I don't know why like they happen to be one of my classes or something. And they're here's like, my like <laughs> here's my like I just a quick question. Were they like already very confident? Because I'm kind of mad as like a nerd when like very confident already guys are just doing more of it. <laughs> when other people there are like learning it and practicing it. Just my nerd revenge inside. They weren't necessarily like good at comedy okay, yeah okay. but they were confident <laughs> yeah i don't know if it was earned but hmm. just because they were like meat heady like uh class clown kind of style there was actually one guy that um was in that group with me that was not there was a little more like nerdy and kind of hmm. and actually very good peter bonifaz hmm. i don't know he's done a bunch of other comedy since then um but I like I was just constantly cast as the like supporting and like boring parts and and I I didn't even know yeah to like speak up or challenge about it and then it was like later that I saw there was like a workshop for like women in improv like how to like 
go against our stereotype casting and like mm. like there was like workshops having to sh- like teach women how to like not just fall into those kinds of roles and like be the one girl on the lineup or whatever and mm-hmm. yeah I just like you always think about oh I wish I had like my now brain and my like younger body yeah, <laughs> and like the experience sure. and like and just to be like no I'm not doing that or or just like push against it instead of just accepting it Mm-hmm. It just felt like, well, that's the way it is. Yeah, which for, sucks for the for that those kind of experiences and being like one of the few women in the improv or sketch scene. That another documentary, if people are interested, I talked about it last week with Amy Solomon. Uh, was is Love Gilda? That's also on Hulu about Gilda Radner and kind of shows her time in Second City with, uh, and then on SNL with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray. Chevy Chase like big pillars of like I guess like what my dad's generation are like that's what like comedy is like they she in her own words talks about having to fight through all of that at that time so it's another interesting documentary about women in comedy or do you have any final thoughts on hysterical people can watch it on Hulu I thought it was a great title that they chose for it. Yeah. (laughs) And when they talk about the definition of hysterical and how that word is used kind of um, in a sexist way and Mm. kind of in terms of like a woman, she's lost her mind. She's hysterical. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just thought it was a great title. Yeah. I remember that being from the same women's studies class with the tearing of the paper uh, episiotomy demonstration was (laughs) talking about how that word Uh, applied to women and then there's like that history of the thought was like women were uh if women were found to be it's like either they were if they were found to be masturbating that they were hysterical or the cure for hysteria was masturbation i'm getting my like freud and stuff mixed up but the point was you can look up there's like a whole history of the vibrator that's all about like curing hysteria at first it was a very clinical thing but um, hysteria and hi- being hysterical uh, is an amazing title for uh, this documentary. Yeah. One, one other thing that made me think of, you can totally cut this later if you don't want to include it, was when I was learning about the history of birth and delivery mm. and how in it was like the early 1900s, there was this method of giving women a drug that basically made them um forget what the childbirth experience was like oh yeah but it didn't take away their pain or like you know they were still living through it in the real time Mm. but these doctors were giving them this specific drug and then tying them up i remember seeing this yeah okay so you saw this already (laughs) and like be like oh like they're just these hysterical women they can't deal with the pain like we just need to tie them up and make them you know just like cry it out or yell it out or anything. And when we'll come in when the baby's ready to be delivered or whatever. Mm. And then like, but they have no memory of it. And so they're just like, have this experience that's been erased, but it's like so traumatic and so messed up. But it was just like doctors not wanting to deal with bedside manner. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's too messy. It was too hard. That's, as an ending note on the hysteric, uh, the hysterical documentary, it's great to hear if there's a Phyllis Diller clip in there where she's like, oh, the lights are really bright in here. Like the last time I saw this, I woke up with a new kid or something. So you can get a little glimpse into like 
Oh yeah, childbirth in that period was terrifying. Oh god. Yes. Um, is there anything you want to plug? We'll give your handles again. You're at Casey Gates on Twitter. I'm at Casey Gates on Twitter. You can watch my short film Crystal on Vimeo.com backslash ladybrainfilms. Um and you can buy Dan's book. He's oh, already yeah, definitely. <laughs> he's already been on here plugging it, but I'll just plug. I'm like, that's like a thing you can spend your money on. Yeah, <laughs> the future is yours by Dan Fry. Um, available everywhere books are sold. There's a link if you go back and if uh, you can hear the episode with Dan. I'm. It's this has been a very fulfilling and interesting experience of recording in person because I'm too relaxed. I don't have my business brain on to be like. <laughs> Wait, what was the month that we filmed the f- or recorded the first episode? August. August. So it's been like seven months. Wow. Almost eight. Congratulations. Thanks. That's a <laughs> You've done so much in seven months. How many episodes? This will be 34. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I look forward to doing more uh, in-person recordings with people that are vaccinated and can do so. Um, yeah. And then I always want to do more of this look building out the podcasts about the things that are about stand-up so documentaries books and all kinds of stuff like that if anybody here everybody has examples of documentaries or anything i should look at um hit me up uh it's at don't sit in the front on instagram uh don't underscore sit on twitter and uh yeah let me know thank you for listening to don't sit in the front please rate and subscribe and leave me a review you can follow the show on Twitter with the handle don't underscore sit or don't sit in the front, all one word, on Instagram. Our music is composed by Chris Helking and our cover art is provided by Memory Bloom Studio. Thank you so much for listening and just remember to always punch up and keep swinging. <laughs>